going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning as we continue our fall study in this wonderful book, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. While you're finding your way to Titus 2, I do have a note um, of some sadness for us, uh, maybe not for her, but uh, our dear sister Mikey Hoyle has uh, decided that God is leading her to return home to Rhode Island, and uh, she is going to be uh, leaving us soon. Is Mikey here this morning? There's Mikey back there. And so shame on you, Mikey. Um, but um, we are, we'll be sad uh, to have you go, but we know that uh, you feel God's hand on you and compelling you to go. And so we want to pray for you, our dear sister, in just a moment. And uh, Mikey will be here next Sunday, from what I understand. The reason why we're making this announcement this Sunday is next Sunday we just want to entirely focus upon our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. And hopefully you got a series of emails this week kind of guiding you and instructing you as to how we could consider the persecuted church this week, how we can be praying. You'll receive prayer updates if you have not already, how you can be praying for our suffering brothers and sisters. And that will all culminate here on Sunday next week when we will focus our service really on interceding on behalf of of our suffering brothers and sisters. We do want you to prayerfully consider how you can give in support of that work, and we're going to take a special offering, if you'll just note that on that offering, that you want to go to the persecuted church, and we'll send all of that uh, to a couple of ministries that deal specifically with our suffering brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, We do this every year, and I trust God will be pleased to work in us and um, work in the world through our prayers, as I trust he has in the past. So here we are now, aren't we, in Titus chapter 2. We continue our fall study in this wonderful little book, and we'll pick up in verse 11 this morning. Hear now the Word of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In the present age. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, which you have preserved for us. We are thankful that you have brought us here this morning to hear it. We think in it and through it you speak to us. We believe this is not an idle time. We believe that your word is living and active, infallible and perfect. We believe it is transforming and enlightening. We believe you speak through it. So in a very real sense, our God in heaven, will you speak to your people today? Through this, your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have uh, recently uh, picked up a series of uh, short stories by H.G. Wells. Uh, Not a Christian author, um, as you probably know. Uh, H.G. Wells most famously uh, has written War of the Worlds. I'm working my way through a a little story called uh, The Country of the Blind. It's an interesting story, beautiful prose, by the way. Um, But uh, he he describes a beautiful and inaccessible valley in Ecuador that there isolated village people are living there with no news from the outside world, and all of them are blind. And of course, that didn't trouble them much because they didn't know any different. 
And uh, plus the valley is abundant and fertile and there's fruit growing everywhere and there's no harmful animals or even troublesome insects, as he writes. And it's a lush, beautiful place. They had everything that they want except sight. Well, the story goes on that a, a young explorer stumbles into this forgotten valley and soon realizes that every single person he meets can't see. And so as he lives there, he begins to explain to them what sight is. He tells them about colors and about beauty and about all the visual wonders of the world. And they listen to them. He, I mean, he gathers them all together, and they are very interested in this. And, and after hearing this man explain all about sight, they conclude not what a wonderful thing we're missing, but instead they conclude that this man must be insane. After all, who ever heard of something called sight? The, 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 the conclusion was, whatever this thing sight is, this man clearly has it, and it has caused him to lose his sanity. Well, this man undeterred decides to stay among them, and as you could imagine, uh, as these stories go, he soon finds himself falling in love with a beautiful girl whom he wants to marry, and the elders uh, consider his proposal of the village, and they conclude that such a union can never work unless this man is cured of his insanity. In other words, unless he is made blind. So he is left to think it over, and after some thought, uh, he agrees. But before the surgery, uh, he asks for a last few hours alone, and so he finds himself out into a lonely meadow filled with wildflowers, and he watches the sunrise coming up and its rays falling down in the valley, and he comes to himself. And he sees that this valley is a, is a trap of ignorance and futility. He, he sees oh, the, 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 the danger, if you will, of the blindness in which they have. And, th and that's where I left off. I'm not sure what happens next. So, um, uh, so I'll, you know, commend the book to you. It's, it's a wonderful little book. I, I, I mention all that because I suggest to you that we too, my fellow Americans, live in an abundant land inhabited by a people who are mostly blind. We are among a people that cannot see the beauty and majesty of the very one who made them, who sustains them, and who loves them. We know this not just by experience, because the scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as you may know, says, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is the country of the blind. Titus lived there too. It was called Crete in his day, 2,000 years ago. And the solution on Crete, just like the solution here in 2018 America, I believe, is to create a living, unified, self-giving, virtuous, Christ-focused community of people that Jesus calls the church. And so Paul writes to Titus, who has left him on Crete, and he says in verse 5 of chapter 1, I want you to set in order. I brought these people to faith, but now you need to establish the churches there. The first thing you do is you appoint qualified leadership in order to do two things, to, to teach the people and to protect the people. And then, as we saw in chapter 2, you will now instruct the family, the church family, how they're to live. And they're to live such virtuous and godly lives that it will actually help blind people come to see the majesty of the gospel which they hold so dearly. And we saw this, these virtues in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Of course, this is not going to be easy for them, just as long, 
This is not going to be easy for us as we try to live this way in this world. Uh, the, the, those around us are going to think we have lost our minds when we talk about God and the one true God and forgiveness of sin and virgin birth and bodily resurrection and heaven and hell and all the rest. It will be simply insanity to them. They will think that we have lost it. How are we going to do this? How are we going to find strength to be this kind of people? How are older men, as Paul writes, going to be loving and steadfast? And older women are to train younger women to love their husbands and their children. And younger women are to be pure and kind. And younger men are to be self-controlled. And employees um, are, are to be submissive in everything. And elders are to be example to God's people. How do we do that? Just try harder. Just kind of gird yourself up tomorrow. Maybe, maybe we could add a couple more Bible studies. Maybe, maybe I can make you feel more guilty on Sunday. That might help. I don't think so. I think the answer is recorded for us in verse 11. You see, the Bible says, for the grace of God has appeared. You notice the first word, for. So verse 1 through 10, live this way. How? Verse 11, because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, he says, waiting, by the way, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. How can we live this way? The answer is we have received God's grace and God's grace will teach us, will train us, will guide us to say no to ungodliness and to live lives of self-control. In fact, you see in verse 11, don't you? It is that grace that saves us And then in verse 12, we see that it is this grace that chains us. Or to put it in more theological terms, grace justifies us. The grace that justifies us will indeed sanctify us. So we think about justify, we think God is taking care of the penalty of our sin. Sin is dealt with on the cross. But that same grace that justifies us transforms us to become more and more like Jesus. Sometimes we even sing of this. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And so I would like us to consider this morning, very simple outline, I think a very simple message. Grace saves you, verse 11, and grace will change you, verse 12. And so we begin here, of course, in verse 11. We read, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, I think it might be helpful, as I mentioned, this is elementary, but I think it's good for us to re- relearn and remember grace. What is grace? I asked my children last night, what is grace? Grace, we might think of as God's unearned favor or God's unearned love, his affection for us. Some have said grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a helpful little mnemonic that we could help remember God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. Yeah, I, I explained to my children, if you, if you were guilty and you went before a judge and, as a defendant and you said to the judge, I want justice, right? The judge would then give you a sentence, a penalty. Uh, he would lock you up for a period of time, whatever the sentence was. That would be justice. But if you went to the judge and says, no, I don't want justice, I want mercy, 
Well, then what, the, what, what would the judge give you? Well, the judge would take away your sentence. You would go free. You wouldn't be punished for the crimes in which you have committed. But what if you, you asked neither for justice or mercy, but you went to the judge and said, no, your honor, I want grace. And he was inclined to give it to you. Well, he would make you the chief of police. And you would go, and he would exalt you to a high place. You see, mercy is what God does to deal with our sin. Mercy is kind of a subset of grace. Grace is, is not God simply forgiving us of our sin, that God has made us heirs with Christ, that we will inherit all of this. He has exalted us into his family, that you and I have become not just forgiven sinners, mercy, but we have become children of God, grace. In fact, he says there, this grace has appeared. You see that there in verse 11. Well, where did it appear? Well, you know where it appeared, didn't you? It appeared in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. It appeared on the roads of Galilee. It, it appeared in the, in the kind touch of a leper, in the loving embrace of a prostitute. In the, it, it appeared in the liberation of a demoniac. It, it appeared in the feeding of the hungry, both in their souls and their bellies. It appeared in the raising of the dead. Grace appeared all over, and, and chiefly, of course, grace appeared on Calvary's cross. Grace appeared... As we even saw from the Psalm 121, grace appeared when Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was an act of grace, the forsaking of Jesus, so that I might be accepted, uh, casting him out, so I might be brought in, the, the rejection of Jesus, so that I might become God's. That's where grace appeared. Grace appeared in an empty tomb three days later. Grace appeared in Jesus. That's where grace came from. John 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth through Jesus Christ. In Christ, God's grace appeared. He gave it to us. That's good news, by the way, because you need it. And to help us understand that we need grace, I, let me just invite you, we don't usually do this, but let me invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. You keep your finger here in Titus, we'll return, of course. But Ephesians chapter 2, so if you want to find Ephesians, go maybe about two or three books, maybe four books towards the front of your Bible, and you're going to find Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians 2 is perhaps one of the greatest uh, descriptions of the grace of God as it pertains to our salvation. God's grace. And what Paul does before he even begins to mention grace, in verses 1 through 3, he explains how it is that we need grace. Why are we in such need of this wonderful thing called grace? And you see in Ephesians 2 verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Well, you see here, don't you, why we need grace. He says in verse 1, we are dead in sin. Verse 3, we lived in the passions of the flesh. We might understand this, that we are corrupted in sin. You need grace because we're corrupted. In verse 2, to make matters worse, he says we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We weren't just corrupted in sin. We were, we were in captivity to Satan. 
And so things are getting worse, aren't they? And then you finally get to the end of verse 3, and, and uh, just to put the cherry on top, right? He says, we were by nature children of wrath. We were condemned to hell. And so you and I, outside of Christ, are corrupted, we're captive, and we are condemned, a threefold need for grace. You see how, how dire that situation is. I mean, you imagine yourself in a, in a dangerous and difficult situation, right? A car accident, maybe the house is on fire, maybe you're, you're swimming in the ocean and sharks are circling around, right? And you could think about all sorts of difficult and dangerous and dire situations. And I'm telling you, if you're here today without Christ, your condition in this room at this very moment is far more critical than anything you could possibly imagine. You are in desperate need of God's grace. We all need God's grace. Well, I have good news. You see, he doesn't stop there. In verse 3, he continues, doesn't he? As you see in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And here it is, isn't it? By what? Help me out here. By what? Grace. Grace, you have been saved. But God, he says. So this is what you were like, but here comes God, and he goes, well, he gives you grace. So I, I was once corrupted, and there was no hope. I was once captive with no hope, and I was once condemned with no hope, but God has given me grace, and God has given you grace. And I want you to appreciate that. I wish, I wish we appreciated it more, that once we were dead in sin, but God has made us alive. That, that once we were captive to Satan, but God has set us free. That once we were, ch- you were ch- a child of wrath, but God has made us heirs of all things. By grace. It's all grace. And you think about Paul who wrote both Ephesians and, of course, Titus. And Paul, Paul, Paul used to think these Christians were fools. And now he says, I'm glad, I'll gladly be a fool with them. He used to think Jesus was a fraud. And now he says, I'm, I bow to him before Lord, my, as my Lord. And, and, and you, my brothers and sisters, don't you do the same? I mean, we, 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 we as adults, you know, in, living in 2018 in the Western world, we go to our bedrooms at night and we kneel down in our beds and we ask God, who's not, not visibly there, but we believe he's listening. And we say, God, will you please guide me? And will you please protect me? And will you please watch over my house while I sleep? And when I wake in the morning, will you please lead me not into temptation so that I don't bring dishonor upon the name of my Lord? Why? Why do we do that? Why do we see? Why do you believe. It's one word. It's grace. That's why. He's given you grace. He loves you. Just don't run by that. God loves you. He loves me. He sees the depth of my heart, and he loves me the same. Because of grace. And he has poured that out upon us. And I, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe unique in my background, but, but I, I, I look at my life, and I know I share this every once in a while, but uh, there, <laughs> I wasn't looking for him at all. I was foul-mouthed. I was violent. I was hateful. I was totally preoccupied with myself. 
I, 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 I would have, if I met Jesus on the street, I would have, excuse my language, I would have given the middle finger and cussed him to his face. Gladly. Gladly I would have. I wouldn't have batted an eye at that. He saved me. He gave me grace. He, he, he poured out his love upon me. And he did that for you as well. Right? He has saved you. He has brought you to himself because he's been gracious to you. It is, a, as we sang this morning, it is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but by God's grace, I now see all of grace. And then, it, why I'm being somewhat autobiographical, then, uh, then he says, I mean, this, then, he, <laughs> then he says, okay, now I want you to pastor my people, right? You want, you want to hear a joke? <laughs> pastor Stephen Carr. I mean, that, that's the punchline, right? I mean, that's funny. And you don't realize it's funny because you didn't know me 25 years ago. And you just ask Allegra how funny that is. In fact, Allegra being a Christian, that's pretty funny too, right? right? Now, she's, she's off praying somewhere, so we could talk about her for a moment. But she was just as far from Jesus as I was, and, and God has come, and God has, has saved her. And that's pretty funny that we're both followers of Jesus. And, and in fact, uh, my father, D- Doug Karn, a rocket scientist who had no interest in God whatsoever, was a committed materialist, uh, faith was for weak people, now a deacon in his church and a follower of Jesus Christ. To me, that's funny. And then my mom, Patricia Karn, also a follower of Jesus, my brother D.A. Karn and my other brother Rob Karn, all committed to Christ. And I look at Allegra's family and her brother's a worship pastor out in California and her mom's a missionary to children. And how is it that two families who who wouldn't have known Jesus if he walked up uh, up to them on the street and said, hello to them. How is it that they now call him Lord and Master and our greatest treasure? How? It's grace. It's grace. The grace of God has appeared. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? What about you? And you, and you, and you, and you. Why are you here? Why do you call him Lord? Well, you see what he says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, we have to read this in its context, don't we? Remember, context is king. Don't take the Bible. Don't take verses out of their context. What does he mean, all peoples? Paul, universalist. No, remember Paul's just been speaking to various groups of people. And then he says, okay, God's grace has appeared to all people. What he means here is all kinds of people, men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, free and slave. That no one is beyond his reach. If you are here today outside of Christ, I tell you, both by God's word and by personal testimony, you are not beyond his reach. That grace has appeared. He says, I love that word appeared. I think that's interesting. It does not say for God's grace started in Jesus. He simply just says God's grace was revealed in Jesus. And what that means is that that if you're a Christian today, God has always been gracious to you. 
And that grace finally made its appearance in Jesus. And then you received it when you recognized it. But God has, from the beginning of time, been gracious to you. That's why Paul begins this letter and says, I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Right? I mean, God, God the Bible says in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, he was being gracious to you. This is extraordinary. I mean, imagine you go out to lunch today, and, you, and your husband looks across uh, the table and says, baby, uh, do you know I loved you long before we ever met? And you say, well, well what do you mean? He says, yeah, that's right. Man, I, I, I adored you before you even knew I existed. She said, really? You say, yeah, I, you know, I saw you with a friend. Right? I, I saw you across the street. I, I saw you at the coffee shop, and you ordered your coffee black, and I, I just, I knew you were the one for me, right? I loved you. I loved you before we ever met. What, what, what would you say to him? How dare you say that to me? I don't think so. You would say, really? That's wonderful. That's glorious. You see, there came a day when you realized you loved God, but far before that day, he was loving you. And that you received his grace because he has been pouring out grace on you long before you ever knew him. The Bible says he chose us and loved us and made us and called us and saved us and guides us. And one day he will perfect us. And I tell you, he does all of this because of grace. In fact, you see the grace cost him a great deal. Down in verse 14, he says, who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness, Jesus gave himself. This is Christianity and its very heart, isn't it? This is what makes Christianity different than any other religion in this world. That Jesus doesn't come to give us a little help. He doesn't come to, to be a crutch as we limp our way off into eternity or, or give us a little bit of wisdom and point us in the right direction. Jesus doesn't even come to make the way, he, uh, to show the way. He comes to make the way. He comes to give himself up there, as you see in verse 14, for us. That's a reference to the cross of Christ, that Jesus will give himself up for our sin. He said to the Father, I will take Stephen's sin. I will take all of his filth. I will take all of his corruption. I will take all of his hostility. I'll take all of his badness. I'll take all of his madness. And I will, I will receive it as, as mine. I will be punished for it in his place. He did this for us. You see that little prepositional phrase there in verse 14. It might be translated in place of us. And we read this throughout the Bible. Ephesians 5.2, for instance, who gave himself for us. Or Galatians 1.4, who gave himself up for our sin. And 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And Christ has given himself for us. The grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation for all people. But notice that's not the end of the sentence. It's not period, okay, end of story. Isn't that wonderful? As great as it is, there's more. Here's the verse 12, isn't there? That this grace doesn't just simply prepare you for your future. The grace of God shapes you for your life in the present. Right? Grace doesn't just prepare you for the future. Grace shapes you for your life in the present. One, one pastor put it this way. The gospel is good news for the last day, but it is also good news for the next day. And that's what verse 12 is all about. He says, this grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, grace deals not just with heaven, not just with once you die, it deals with here and now. God's grace saves us, and secondly, God's grace changes us. 
It transforms us. It trains us to, to be godly and to, to follow after Jesus. I love the story of Nicholas Ludwig von Zizendorf. He's a German, by the way, in case you're not aware. Uh, <laughs> born in 1700. You guys know Zizendorf, I trust. Uh, founded a Christian community which uh, was called the Lord's Watch, known for its missionary zeal. It was when Zizendorf was 27 years old in 1727 that he started an around-the-clock prayer watch, the Lord's Watch. And this around-the-clock prayer watch, someone was praying from his community at every moment of every day, and it lasted for 100 years. Started with 300 people who covenanted together to pray for an hour, in a 24-hour period, they each kind of took their hour. And for 100 years, unbroken, these men and women prayed. Um, it was in 1792 that this Lord's Watch sent 300 missionaries to unreached people groups, which was unheard of in that day. So how, how did this community start? Well, Zizendorf was, uh, was of noble blood. And after he finished his time in the university, he traveled through Europe, seeing the cultural highlights. And he was in a museum in Dusseldorf. And there uh, he saw the famous painting, Echo, Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. And there's a portrait of Christ with a crown of thorns upon his head and blood running down his face. And it, it just standing there changed his life. In fact, his biographer says, as he stood there, as it were, watching his Savior suffer and bleed, he said to himself, I loved him for a long time, but I have never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And so he even went back, formed this Christian community, and they soon sent out two young missionaries uh, who boarded a ship in Copenhagen and set sail for the West Indies. They would never return, by the way. And while they were setting sail, uh, and, and with the watching community there on, on the, in the harbor, and, and, and the ship sails out, they lifted their hands up as if almost in a sacred pledge. And they called out to their friends on the shoreline, and they said, May the Lord, may the Lamb who was slain, Receive the reward of his suffering. And the lamb who was slain received the reward of his suffering. And that actually became the motto for the Lord's Watch. You see, these two young missionaries realized that God's suffering, or if you will, Christ's grace, is intended to bring him what? A reward. What is that reward? Well, the reward is you and I and the nations living lives that give him glory and honor and joyful gratitude. That's the reward that he wants. That's why Paul says this grace has come to train us. I, I wonder if this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote in Galatians 2.20, that I, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, yet the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, I give my life to him, the, the one who first gave his life for me. Right? That's why I serve him. That's why I do what I do, Paul says, because he, he, he gave me grace. He loved me. He gave himself up for me. Now I give myself to him. So my question is, what, why is it that you serve and honor the Lord? Christian, what, 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 why do you obey him? I hope it's not to earn his love in any way. I hope it's not to you know, receive his grace. You already have it. You're not, you, you don't beg. You're not trying to earn a promotion. You, you, you have his favor. You're, I mean, how far, much farther can he promote you? You're his child. Right? You have his love. And it's that love that you have that should compel obedience. The grace should train you to obey. And so let me illustrate it this way. Oh, Lager's not here. We could talk all about this. So here we go. Um, what, what, why do, what, here's my question for you. Men, 
why don't you cheat on your wives? Okay? Why don't you cheat on your wives? Now, I, I, I think, I think it would be helpful, by the way, to, to actually formulate an answer in your mind. You don't have to shout it out. That would be okay. Um, but, but why? I think there's a number of possible answers. One, we might say, why well, don't pick us out of duty? Right? Uh, the law, we might put it that way. There's, right? It's wrong. I'm therefore not going to do it. And so I wonder, do you, do you wake up every morning and think, okay, I'm going to try really hard today not to cheat on my wife. Okay? And that's my ambition, and here I go. No, I don't, I don't think you probably live that way. Okay? I don't think you, you refrain from that sin out of duty. Another answer might be fear, right? You don't cheat on your wife because you're afraid of her. And I think there's a little truth in that, at least for me, right? Um, <laughs> you know, all right? Right? So we might say, well, okay, answer. But probably that's probably not the biggest reason, right? So you, you might say, well, one answer is duty. The other answer we might call danger. Okay? I don't do it because it's dangerous. But there's, there's a third answer, isn't there? I don't, I don't cheat on her because I love her. I adore her. And, and she loves me. Why, why would I ever even contemplate something like that? Why would I ever even consider betraying her in such a way? Is that not your answer? I don't because I love her. I delight in her. But why, why do you say no to ungodliness and seek to live a self-controlled life that brings God honor? Is it because of your duty to him? Or the danger that might happen if you don't? Or is it because you delight in him? Because you love him? Because he has given you grace? See, I, I don't think we obey God by focusing on the, the, the acts of obedience any more than you don't cheat on your wife by focusing on not cheating on your wife. Right? You, you, we, we, don't, we don't gird ourselves up today and say, okay, today I'll be kind, and today I'll be patient, and today I'll, you know, I, 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 I'm going to be truthful, and all the rest. We don't, we're not to simply just focus on what we are to do. We are to focus on what he has done for us. We are to focus on grace. We are to dive deep into grace and understand who he is and who we are outside of him and what he has done for us. And as we rejoice in the grace in which we have, and we dive deep in the relationship that we have with God, that we will find this grace giving us power to obey him. So we think about it, and we memorize truths about it, and we pray about grace, and we sing about grace as we did all morning long, and then throughout the week we get together with our brothers and our sisters, and we talk about grace in each other's life, and we celebrate it, and, and we think about it, and then we see this, feel this grace working in us to compel us into righteousness. You think, you think about what, God, what sin does to God and how it, what it does to his glory and what it does to his name and what it does to his son. And the more you rejoice in grace, the more you say, I don't want any part of it. I hate it. And in fact, I think once you receive grace and once you rejoice in grace and, and, and delight in it, as one has said, the sin becomes more loathsome than the punishment. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it long ago, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, and so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so. And the key to the Christ-honoring life is not focusing on what you must do for God. It is focusing and celebrating on what God has done for you, is doing for you, and will do for you, namely his grace.
And when you do, you will find that grace is teaching you to say no and to say yes. It's teaching you to put off the old and put on the new. You see that there in verse 12, don't you? It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's train, God's grace trains us to say no. Grace causes us to give up that which is dis- displeasing to God. Grace causes us to leave the old life behind. When your children start moving about, your babies grow up and enter that wonderful phase we call toddler, you train them, don't you, with one word more than any other word, right? And the word is not yes, it is no. And sometimes they're there, a bunch of no's in succession. No, no, right? No, no, no. Right? You, for, every, for every one yes, there are a hundred no's. Because that little cutie kind of stumbles over to the picture frame and the remote control or comes up to the edge of the stairs, right? And what do you say? You say to them, no, no. And they look back at you. And they'll stare you right in the face. And they, they can't verbalize it, but this is what they'll think. This is what I think of your no-no, right? right? <laughs> You're not as tough as you look. And they'll go for it, right? And we all, I think, in fact, I think, I think God gives us toddlers as a parable for the world. Because the, this is what the world's doing all the time. God, this is what I think of your no-no, right? This is what I think of you telling me not to do this, right? You're not as tough as you look. In fact, the world says no to nothing. Right, the one thing the world says no to is the word no, right? We're, we're, we're just going to say yes to everything. We're going to go where we want to go and do what we want to do and with whomever we want to do it. Francis Schaeffer, I think somewhat prophetically 50 years ago, said we, we're surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. We live, we have a society that holds itself back for, from nothing. Not so for the Christian. The Christian says no to ungodliness. The Christian says no to worldly passions because of the grace in which we have received. And I don't think it's hard to understand what Paul is talking about here. Sexual compulsion, anger, hatred, abusive speech, preoccupation with things and experiences, right? The the strong sinful desires and acts that marked our life before we came to Christ is to be set aside. We are to take that off. We are to say no to it. It's not to say we're not tempted. We are. We all are. In fact, it will be hard to say no. And if it's not hard for you to say no, chances are you're not saying no enough. It will be difficult because of our flesh, We are to say no. We are to run from the things that lead us to places that dishonor God. We're not to open the door. We're not to turn it on. We're not to listen. We're not to consider. We are to run. Get out of there. God has died to save you from those sin. Do not go back into them if you cherish God's grace. John says we run away from the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he does because grace has come and grace is transforming us and grace is teaching us to say no. He has come to give us liberty from those things. Christian, where are you saying no? Maybe, maybe even right now you know you're supposed to be saying no to something you're doing in your life. May God's grace be so powerful in your life that you would find liberty from that.
He laid down his life as we sang that I would be set free. That's not all it teaches us. If we not only leave the past life, it shows us to live a new life. You read on in verse 12. It says there, and we are to live what? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. These three virtues impact all of our relationships. In relation to ourselves, grace teaches us self-control. In relationships to others, grace teaches us to be upright. In relationship to God, grace teaches us to be godly. Self-control, by the way, we've seen already, haven't we? We saw it in chapter 1, verse 8. Elders are to have self-control. Chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to have self-control. Chapter 2, verse 5. Young women are to have self-control. Chapter 2, verse 6. Young men are to have self-control. Now for the fifth time in this little book, we see that all of God's people are to have self-mastery over themselves. They are to be godly. They are to live lives of devotion and love and delight in the Lord. They are to be upright. That is, they are to be just. means to live justly. Right? We see the word upright, you might be tempted to think private morality. You might be tempted to think, okay, if I'm upright, I'm not bitter, or I tell the truth. That's not what it means. It, it means to be just in the context of your relationships. The just individual lives for the good of others. The, the Christian sees how Christ has lived for the good of others, namely themselves, and then seeks to do it as well. One Old Testament commentator, Bruce Walkey. I think it's helpful when he says, it is the unrighteous, it is unrighteous to not feed the hungry when you have the power to do so. It is unrighteous to take so much money out of business that the employees are paid poorly. It is unrighteous to be busy with your own concerns, uh, to be too busy with your own concerns than to look in on your elderly neighbors. See, grace trains us to sacrifice for others as Christ has sacrificed for you. So my question for you as we look at this passage is, are you being trained by God's grace? Where are you saying no? Where are you saying yes? How is it changing you? If I came in this morning, I arrived here late and disheveled, a little bit frantic, and I came up to this pulpit and I said, well, you know, I'm sorry I'm late. Crazy thing happened to me on my way in. I got a flat tire. They're out on seven, and I was, I was out changing the tire, and I, I, got, I got run over by a truck. It just came right over, right over top of me. And uh, so, you know, it helped me up a little bit, so uh, here I am, sorry I'm late. Right, you would conclude, I don't, I don't think you got run over by a truck, right? If you got run over by a truck, you would look different, right? And you would talk different, and you'd be walking different, and everything about you would be different. If you've been hit by God's grace, you'd be different. You just want to be saved, forgiven, you'd be different. It would change you. And I'm telling you, according to God's word and as much kindness in my heart as I can have, if, if, if you're lying habitually or you're constantly angry or you don't take care of others or if you're letting the passions, men, of, and the lust of the flesh run rampant in your life, if you're more angry over other people's sin than you are against your own sin against God you really need to ask, is God's grace really changing me? Because his grace doesn't make obedience possible. It, it makes it necessary. You can't tell me that you love your spouse and then abuse them or speak unkindly to them and, or ignore them, right? You can't say, okay, I love God. I've been impacted by his grace, but I, I'm, I'm not going to be any different because of it. And maybe this morning you have never received God's grace. Maybe that's the issue. 
Maybe you come in here this morning and you're trying to do this all on your own. I have good news to you. You don't have to do it on your own. There's a power called grace that would propel you into righteousness. And Christ has died upon the cross in order to secure it for you. He rose from the dead. And if you would simply bow yourself to him in faith and yield your life to him as your king and Lord, he, he, would, he would shower you with grace. He would save you forever and change you for today and tomorrow. And for the rest of us, I think perhaps the, the best way to conclude this service is to celebrate this meal of grace right before us, isn't it? And this reminder of what God has done to us, the reminder of the grace in which he has poured out upon us. And I, I wonder if some come in here and you're weary today and others are beaten down perhaps. Maybe you're discouraged, tired. Maybe you're ensnared in sin. God has a word for you today. It's grace. There's your way out. There's your hope. There's your power. There's your strength. You plunge the depths of God's grace to you. And we'll begin here in this meal. And we think about our Lord spilling his blood and breaking his body that he might be gracious to people such as us. And so perhaps it would be good to prepare our hearts for it. Speak to the Lord. Give him thanks and repent of any known sin. Why don't you pray silently as we prepare? Our Father, and our Lord, our Creator, you are the almighty and everlasting God. And you have given us life and being and shown us the fullness of your love, the fullness of your grace in sending into the world your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word made flesh for our salvation. And it's for this precious gift of our mighty Savior, who has now reconciled us to you, we come to this table. And we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the world. And in the joy of his resurrection and the expectation of his soon return, our souls now feast upon this meal. We pray in Jesus' name.